Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another Britflix podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me Liam Regan. Hello, Liam. Hey, Stuart. How's it going? It's going very well. It's going well. What film are we uh, coming together on this podcast to talk about? Uh, we're talking about my uh, my first feature-length movie uh, called Banjo. Okay. Do you want to give us a, a brief synopsis as to what Banjo's about? Yeah, sure. Uh, Banjo is basically about a disgruntled office worker uh, that uh, reeks revenge on his tormentors by summoning his uh, imaginary friend Ronnie mm. uh, some people like to describe it as Drop Dead Fred the horror movie and it's uh, it's basically my love letter to films that I used to watch as a kid um, mainly films by Lloyd Kaufman from Troma and Frank Hen- sorry and Frank Henningwater who uh, directed films like Basket Case, Brain Damage and Frankenhooker okay okay and what is it what is it about those films that's appealing to you as a filmmaker uh um, I think it's probably like the um, the black comedy and the over-the-top slapstick violence. I mean, even, even as a kid, I used to watch uh, the, BBC sitcom, sorry, the BBC sitcom Bottom with Rick Mail, and mm. um, I was always very interested um, towards, you know, the kind of slapstick comedy. And when I first watched Toxic Avenger 2, I must have been 11 years old, my mum purchased it me from... Uh, blockbuster video like an x rental um i just fell in love with it because it was nothing like i've uh, it was nothing like the movies that i used to rent beforehand because it was very much um into like my creature feature flicks from the 80s like uh, critters ghoulies gremlins but these were all done on a you could say low budget for hollywood but then trauma came along and it was kind of like anything goes with their dark humor and over the top violence and uh, yeah, I guess I kind of got my fix from that with films like Robocop. Like, cause there's some films in the 80s that display that ultra-violence. Yeah. But with Troma, it was very cartoony. They had, like, a Looney Tunes aspect to it. Then you kind of got this head honcho, Lloyd Kaufman, which is essentially Troma's Mickey Mouse. And I think as, a, as like, an 11-year-old 11 11 kid at Sky TV that were able to watch things late night on Bravo. Yeah. Um... I, I, it was just, I became, I guess, you know, engrossed and obsessed with uh, the company known as Troma. And I, um, I quickly worked my way through their back catalogue with their late night screenings back in 1996. And um, I, I guess that was the time when I just thought, wow, if these guys can make the films that they want to make, 
um, maybe one day I could write a film. So I, I guess Banjo is a love letter to the films I kind of grew up on in my uh, early teens. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, and we'll get, we'll get on to your film in more detail in a minute, but for the, for the uninitiated, where, where would you say is a good place to start as far as Troma's catalogue? Because there are many, and there are, you know, there are the, the completely trash ones, and there are ones where the good does will out, as it were. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, personally, my, my favourite film of all time, Time. It is a trauma movie, mm-hmm. and it's um, titled Tromeo and Juliet that came out in 1996. Now, Tromeo and Juliet was actually written uh, by a trauma intern that people may know uh, called James Gunn, okay. who's now best known for films like um, Slither, Super, and the you know one of the biggest films of last year, Guardians of the Galaxy. Of course, yeah. Yeah, um, I think with Tromeo and Juliet. Um, I don't know why I fell in love with that film so much. I, I must have been 12. I know it's screened on Bravo in, like, 1997. And it was just, I guess, his use of characters. And you see that in his later films. He knows how to write characters. And and with, with Tromey and Juliet, because I kind of, because I studied, like, Shakespeare in school, I was aware of Shakespeare. It was, like, the punk rock version of, <laughs> uh, of Romeo and Juliet. And it's kind of funny because it was actually shot a year before the... Um, um, the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, remake. Um, but yeah, I think Tromeo and Juliet is probably one of the most accessible trauma films. And um, also two more I'd recommend would be uh, Poultry Guys, Night of the Chicken Dead, that came out in 2008, directed by Lloyd Kaufman as well. That's like a um, zombie chicken musical. I kind of, <laughs> I kind of feel like the, uh, the, the zombie subgenre is a little oversaturated right now, but... With films like Poltergeist and Stalled, they, they do something a little different. So I'd recommend Poltergeist. And the last film I'd recommend for anyone that's wishing to, I guess, check out Trauma would be um, Trey Parker's Cannibal the Musical um, that he shot whilst he was in film school uh, in university. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely recommend those, uh, those three titles. I never knew that was a Trauma release in the end. Yeah, they actually uh, picked it up just before South Park got really big. And then ah. once South Park got really big, everyone wanted the distribution of Cannibal the Musical, but Trauma had it, so... Fantastic, fantastic. Now, now let's talk about your film, Banjo, and obviously, uh, not obviously at all, but, but like 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 uh, you said in your, your synopsis, I mean, when I when I reviewed the film, you know, mm. Drop Dead Fred, the horror film, does, does spring to mind with it. Um, what was... What was your inspiration for it? I mean, was was it was it born out of a of a short film you made, Banjo, at all? Yeah, um, I guess I always wanted to make films. Like you know, ever since the nineties, and I used to rent films. I was always inspired to, oh, maybe one day I, I could write a film. And um, <clears throat> I mean, if you wish, I, I, I can explain your origin story. I mean, it's little. No, no, no. Please do. No, no. Tell me, okay? what, tell me how how you conceived Banjo. Yeah, please do. Yeah, sure. Even, I mean, the origin story has some extremities to it. Is that okay for the Yeah, podcast? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So basically, I was um, I was coming out of a uh, of a relationship, and uh, I was in uh, I was in London, and whilst in London, I actually had a, a sexual accident. I I actually snapped my banjo string, and I didn't know what a banjo string was at the time. Basically, uh, I tore a little piece of foreskin on top of my penis, and. Yeah. Um, the next day, we were walking around Leicester Square, and uh, I had to wrap my my penis in tissue paper. And we, because it was bleeding, um, 
we actually went to see the Darren Lynn Bowsman Mother's Day remake. This was back in 2011. And I turned to um, my girlfriend at the time before I broke up and I actually said to her, you know what, what happened last night may make a, a messed up idea for a horror film. So we broke up and I thought I'd just concentrate on something that I always wanted to do and that was filmmaking. And, you know, I, 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 um, I bought books like... Um, uh, Save Cat by Blake Snyder and uh, The Hero's Journey and um, screenplay by sorry, screenplay by Sid Field and I just learned the actual um, writing structure for screenplays and the three act structure and I uh, I quickly wrote like a three page treatment for a title called Banjo and from that three page treatment I thought I'd make my 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 first short film so we sh shot the short film in 2012. Um, it played Trauma Dance Film Festival in New Jersey, New York. And once it screened there, it was only a little amateur 15-minute film because I did study moving image in college and university, but I, I would say that the short film Banjo was the first thing I actually completed. Um, so once it screened at Trauma Dance, I started getting emails from people saying, oh, my God, that was so fucked up. And, you know, I, I kind of liked that as a compliment that I made something very amateur and it... It got a reaction out of people. Mm. And from that, I guess that inspired me to take the characters from the short film and start writing a feature-length version of Banjo. And I thought maybe I'd go through the crowdfunding route. So I went with Kickstarter and I thought, okay, <clears throat> I think I could make this film on 10 grand. So I, um, we shot a fake trailer, basically. We got a second draft of the script, took out scenes, and we shot a fake trailer uh, for a week. And then we put the Kickstarter live and we asked for five grand thinking that, okay, if I could raise five grand, I'll raise the other five grand in my technical support job, which I still work to this day, mm. uh, in overtime to afford this movie. So we, uh, we got the five grand, got the Kickstarter and the film just kept getting bigger and bigger when I was able to get, let's say, uh, Lawrence R. Harvey from the Human Centipede films involved mm. and the use of the, uh, the red one MX camera, the red camera. And it just kept growing and growing. So I was working maybe 16 to 18 hour days uh, over time at my technical support job to be able to afford the movie. And then it was to the point of like Kevin Smith did with Clerks, I guess, maxing out credit cards, taking out loans to be able to afford this movie. So uh, we shot it last summer over a 22 day period. Um, we had like a cast of crew around 100. And um, that's quite it, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, you know, I, I'm trying to just go through the motions of the actual film, like, because it's been such a long process. I mean, the script yeah, yeah. to, like, at least seven different drafts. Um, the first draft, I guess, was very exploitation-based, and then it went a little PG-13, and then I kind of got, I, I well, I feel I kind of got the right balance with the movie in terms of it wasn't too over the top, and I just wanted to make a movie with a lot of heart, and I guess... When you write, you kind of write, um, you kind of write about experiences that you've gone through as a person, and you know, ninety percent of the characters in Banjo, I guess, are basically uh, myself. And um, I, I'll be honest with you, Stuart, I still can't believe I've been able to make a movie. I mean, it's just—it's always been my dream to make a film, and it's none of this feels real. Like I'm doing this podcast right now, and the idea of like, oh, I've I've made a film, and all these people have helped me because I wouldn't have been able to do it without any of these people. Mm. Uh, me it just feels very surreal like i could wake up any minute and it'd be all just a dream i don't know you know and, and in a way because 
I am, I am just a, I'm a horror fan first, you know, more, more than anything. I mean, I've, I grew up reading Fangoria, you know, renting films from the video store, uh, going to Friar Fest five years ago, just as a fan on my own, because I had no other friends that was as, as obsessed as horror films as I was. Um, it just, I don't know, it just all feels surreal. But yeah, so we made the film last, we shot the film last year, and um, yeah, here we are today. I mean, it premiered at Friar Fest, I think, three weeks ago. And uh, yeah, it's been a quite, it's been a long four-year process. Can you tell me what your, uh, what your, what your, your storytelling challenges were in terms of, you know, what you were learning about screenwriting and then what you were trying to do with Banjo to make it a feature-length film? Yeah, so I mean... To be honest with you, I, I, I tell the characters from the short film, I'm like, okay, how am I going to structure this into a feature-length movie? And I always found writing the first act was so easy. I, I could, I could, because with writing in the past, I've abandoned so many projects because I always thought screenwriting, and it still is, screen, I find screenwriting is such a hard process and you need a lot of patience and you really need to be in love with the story because you're going to be basically stuck with this you know, st uh, story and film for the next three, four years to try and get it off the ground. So you've really got to believe in what you're writing. But um, with writing, uh, sorry, with writing Banjo from the first draft to um, the seventh draft, it was just basically, well, how I did it was I, I watched a lot of films at the same time. I'm like, okay, what does this character represent? And okay, so I need to bring in probably Ronnie by the end of act one. So basically introduce all the characters in act one um mention the actual um the actual uh sorry um oh sorry i'm just <laughs> sorry right, go on yeah 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 we're still we're still the actual, there um the actual process of the writing was um it was basically just making sure i mean with banjo it is basically about a guy that guy that, a guy that gets bullied so i'm like okay let's throw so much shit to this protagonist pelzer and and somehow have the audience cheer for him in Act Three, you know, without giving away any spoils or anything. It's about of a guy course. that gets revenge, mm. and it was just basically trying to get the um, the B story um, off the ground, which is basically the love story in Banjo in Act Two, and then to um, to wrap it all up in Act Three. So, I, yeah, it was just basically studying other films, see how they kind of did it, and then also looking at like DVD chapters. And looking, okay, what actually happens 25 minutes into a film? What actually happens 30 minutes into the film? Something needs to happen here. Or, you know, if, if a catalyst is introduced on, let's say, page 10 of a script. So, mm. because basically when you're reading these screenwriting books, it's all about writing like a spec screenplay for Hollywood. But when you're actually shooting, it's, it's a little different. I mean, Banjo was, the, the final draft of Banjo was around 100 pages long. And they do say, oh, it should be a page per minute. Basically write a page per minute. Yeah. But the original cut of Banjo was like over two hours long and that's insane <laughs> for, a, uh, for a horror film to have that running time. And it's kind of hard as well for a director to have that kind of discipline because you feel like everything you've wrote is it, important. It's like every, every scene serves a purpose. So the editing and you have this you know, over two hour assembly cut, it's like crap. So what can we lose? And it, it took me me going to can to have that kind of discipline to find and, and, and to know what works because when you watch your film for the first time with an audience especially like a market screening when basically what well, market screening is for anyone that doesn't know it's basically distributors sales agents and festival programmers they're not 
there to essentially be entertained, but they're there to, to actually pick up films for distribution purposes and films that they feel like they could potentially um, have for their film festivals. And, you know, you get a lot of people just walking out because, you know, five minutes into Banjo, you're probably going to know if this film's for you or not because it is um, quite an extreme film. And it's... Um, so, yeah, to, to watch that with an audience was really hard work. And I, I kind of saw what worked and what didn't work on screen. So what I thought was brilliant was like, oh, this fantastic scene. I'm like, oh, this doesn't actually say anything. This doesn't actually move the story forward. Why the hell did I cut that out? So it took that kind of, um, in a way, humiliation because I actually walked out of the can screening uh, an hour into it. I was just like dying inside, just looking at people. And just, I, mean, I, I remember seeing one guy slump in his chair in the front row. And I'm like, you know what? I'm out of here. I just took a long walk. And I waited for people to come out of the screening. Um, and, you know, people gave me some amazing feedback, just some great constru constructive criticism about what didn't work in the film. I mean, in the original Cancor, Stuart, the imaginary friend Ronnie, with, because basically Banjo is like a buddy film in a way. Of Ronnie course, yeah. um, didn't come in until 45 minutes in the wow. can. And in the assembly cut, it didn't come in until the end, the hour mark. And I'm like, we've kind of got to get Ronnie in as soon as possible. Because, uh, you know, I, I listened to um, one of your podcasts before Friday Fest. And, you know, even you mentioned, and, and many people do mention, the film doesn't really begin until Ronnie appears. When mm. Ronnie appears, it's like, okay, here we go with the story. Um, it's kind of like, like, you, like you were saying in your kind of theoretical view of it was... You know, when you were watching films, you were kind of thinking Ronnie needs to be like the kind of end of Act One into Act Two. Yeah. But you were, it, 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 and that's what I think you've achieved with the final cut. But I'm guessing with your the can cut, it, it was like it's like waiting for Ronnie in the end, isn't it? That's exactly that's exactly what it is. And and I think what I was saying earlier, you know, with structuring the screenplay, I think I just put too much in Act One. Mm. I wasn't disciplined enough for Act 1 because I kept coming up with different characters and it's like, okay, so Pelsa needs to get humiliated by this character, this character, and this character to, to kind of justify what he does and to push him over the edge. And in <clears throat> can a lot of people were just saying, look, there's just too much bullying. There's too much humiliation of Lawrence Harvey's character. There's too much of this, too much of that. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of need to tone it down. So after that first market screening, I Skyped with the editor that night, just panicking, saying, look, this has to go, this has to go. Can you please, can you please get me an 85-minute cut? Because the can cut was 107 minutes. Wow. So I'm like, can you please, yeah, so can you please, like, try and get it down? And when I come back, I'll, I'll have a look to see, um, you know, how, how we can actually make this into a um, – a film to play film festivals, because essentially that's if you make a long ass movie and no festival will pick it up and no one wants to see it, what's the point in making it? You know, so um, it was hard work in the end. But to me, you know, people talk about director's cuts. And when I talk about the can cut, everyone's like, oh, maybe that could be your director's cut. To me, Stuart, the final cut is the director's cut. Because it's, <laughs> kind of, it's kind of hard to like watch that can cut again because it's just it's such a struggle to kind of get through but i think i think the difference there is that you know i think when you the way you're talking about it is that you were able to if, if i can sort of retrace what you just told me you were able to learn lessons a very hard way like you I mean, use the word humiliated and you left mm. an hour an hour an hour in and stuff but you were able to learn what what works as it were for your movie and then and then act on it whereas i think when we see when we hear the notion of director's cut it's where years down the line the director's got their hands on it and can for the dvd version or whatever 
put yeah. out put out a version that they always wanted because when they made the film, the contract said the produ- the, the 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 studio gets final cut, which means the director doesn't. You yeah, know I mean, I mean, you had you had you had and have ultimate control over your movie, don't you? Nobody's telling you you can or you can't cut it here or cut it there, are they? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, it, it just, uh, but yeah, it, it, to be honest with you, can was probably one of the biggest learning experiences that you know I, I could have had because if I didn't have the can experience, I'd probably be trying to shop around right now a 107 minute horror film that no one wants to screen because it's too long. And then I look back at the movies that I used to watch as a kid, and you know the running times, like for, for, for like let's say you know the Child's Play movies or the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, for example, always like between eighty to ninety minutes. They were never two-hour epics, you know. Oh yeah, I mean you look. I mean just you only have to look at the the program for for Frightfest really to get get a sense. I mean even this year, I mean there's very few that are over ninety minutes long. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, so I, I mean. It'd be, it'd be churlish to sort of. I mean, in your casting, you've, you've, you did you did really well. You mentioned Mr. Harvey from uh, from Human Centipede two and is he in three as well? That's right, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in three as well. Um, but you've also got a brilliant cameo in it from one of the big inspirations. You've got Lloyd Kaufman in himself, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which, is awesome. You know, it's great. So how did how did that come about in your movie then? Because that's that for, for a love letter to trauma to then have. <laughs> Have the, the the head honcho for trauma in? I mean, you described him as Mickey Mouse of trauma. Yeah. Um, that's like that's that's almost like very that's almost like meta, you know, in terms of in terms <laughs> of what you're doing. You know, it's kind of like almost like pop leads itself, so to speak. Um, you know, I love I love trauma so much. I put trauma in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, whenever Lloyd used to come over to the UK. Like I first met Lloyd when he did a, a convention in uh, Leicester, an uh, independent cinema in Leicester, hmm. and um, we always kept in touch. And he then um, he then did like a filmmaking masterclass at Oxford University, like just a one day masterclass in yeah. 2010. And from there, you know, he, he mentioned to me that he was thinking about shooting uh, Return to Newcomb High in uh, summer of 2012. So I emailed him saying, Lloyd, um, can I, you know, come work on the film as a production assistant? I, you know, I'll do anything. He's like, sure. So uh, I flew myself out to Buffalo, Niagara, New York in summer 2012 and slept on, a floor, uh, slept on the floor of an abandoned funeral home with over 100 other people. <laughs> and uh, to, in a way, that was like my film school. So I was able to live out my dream and, and work on a trauma movie um, as a background artist and as a production assistant, a runner, basically, yeah. and as a Lloyd's assistant. And it was great just to be on set of a trauma movie and just seeing how different departments work. And it was really inspiring that all these people were coming together for their love of of trauma because basically I was with people that were exactly like me that you know used to watch trauma films when they were younger and now they're they're helping Lloyd on his um on his latest movies so from there I you know I came back from New York and I quickly uh, wrote the um no sorry quickly I started to write the, the banjo feature on screenplay and I just emailed Lloyd saying I'd love for you to have a cameo in my movie because Banjo is basically a love letter to everything that you've done. And uh, he flew himself over, but one day did his scene, flew back the next. So he it was never great. did. Yeah, yeah. So he was like <laughs> in London. So he was he was in the UK for like you know less than forty eight hours. It was crazy. That's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. Amazing story. So what would I mean? Thinking of that time on on his set in Buffalo, and then thinking yeah. of when you were making your movie. What what were the kind of 
lessons learned from that production assistant job that you were able to sort of bring across to suddenly being like, you know, the conductor of your movie as the writer director? Sure. I mean, with <clears throat> being on set on Return to Newcombe High in 2012, I was able to see how different departments work. And I feel like if you're a micro budget independent filmmaker, you also need to have like a producer's head on as well. Mm. You need to think about every single department. For example, I mean, this might sound funny and it might sound weird to a lot of people, but food is such an important aspect of filmmaking, especially when you've got a cast and crew of 100, as well as, like, say, accommodation. And just little things like that like, are, are important, people's diets, etc. I mean, we had, you know, um, two producers on Banjo. But when it's a micro-budget outfit and... Um, basically people working on this in their own time you've kind of got to be ahead of the game and you've got to be you've got to be ahead of everyone else so just basically making sure people are fed is, is a big thing and also just seeing like how call sheets work and just basically seeing how the first ad communicates with the director how the director communicates with the dop and not just being on, on trauma set but i've also worked on um damien martyr who works for safe house pictures his films like Book of the Dead Esper trilogy, which you can buy now. Mm. And um, he's got another film coming out called The Day After Dark with Nicholas Vince from Hellraiser. Um, and just being on the sets, making coffee, or just, you know, just being an assistant, just watching, just being an observer. And I think, um, you know, any piece of advice I can dispense for anyone that wants to get into film is, you know, just turn up to sets and help out as a runner. Just try and get your foot in the door and make connections because it is networking. Because whilst in Buffalo working on Lloyd's film, I were able to get two um, two of their main stars to be in Banjo. I, I got uh, Vito Trigo, who plays Mr. Sawyer in Banjo. Mm. He was the lead villain in Return to Newcomb High. And Clay Von Karlowitz, who played Styles in Banjo, he was also one of the um, lead protagonists in Return to Newcomb High. And it's all about just communicating and networking. And because everyone essentially that works on these films wants to be a filmmaker or wants to get their foot in the door. And it's all about helping each other out. So it was great to work on Lightset to make some great relationships, great friendships, and also just um, just see how a movie is made of that magnitude, you know? Um, so yeah, it, it, was a, it was basically my film school. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, now you, you mentioned about having to, with low-budget filmmaking, having to have like the producer's head on as well as the writer-director's head on. Mm. And I thought it's a, it's a great example, the uh, the point about accommodation and food, because mm. you, you, can, you, can cheat, you can cut costs on a shot because you can decide mm. not to do something, but you still have to feed 30 people. And, exactly. And yeah. if you've not prepared to do that, it'll actually, it get, I guess it'll get more expensive than if you have prepared to do it. And if you have prepared to do it, you're kind of like saying... Ten pound a day per head, and then it's kind of right. like there's a cost that you can't move. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but but looking at your script, the script, and in terms mm. of your ambition, in terms of what you what you'd written, mm. and what you envisioned as a director, when you put your producer's head on, mm. what was the kind of internal dialogue between you and the direct the director you about yeah. what was the most challenging aspect about what was on the page, and how did you go about uh, achieving that? I mean, I, I mean. The idea that Kaufman came in for a 48-hour round trip to be in it would seem uh -huh. like a logistical nightmare, so I can imagine that would be a challenge. But in terms of what you, you wrote on the page to happen, whether that would be special effects or a bigger set piece or whatever, do you want to talk about how you, you worked through that? Sure, yeah. I mean, a lot of it, I mean, when you write a script, you kind of have everything in mind. Yeah, this would be great, this would be fantastic. 
But then when you go on a location scout, it's like, okay, that doesn't really translate well. How are we going to do that? And with scriptwriting and directing, it's all about compromise and mm-hmm. trying to get that happy medium because you basically don't have all this money to kind of create what you've got in your head you know, in camera. So a lot of it is just compromising. And especially with, I mean, Banjo had like a totally different ending to what's in the final cut. Oh, um, that's I met, yeah, I made sure everyone had their comeuppance. And everyone asked me after the uh, screening at Fryfest, oh, how come, you know, the two main villains didn't like, you know, how come Ronnie didn't kill them? And I'm like, well, you know, there's always a sequel. But, you know, in reality, we shot the ending twice and it doesn't appear in the final cut. So, so we spent so much time trying to get this ending right, trying different locations, and it just didn't work. And we're like, we're shooting that ending maybe for like maybe eight hours, working early hours in the morning, dedicating all these special effects, throwing money at special effects that really you don't see on screen. So a lot of the budget went on a lot of set pieces that just didn't translate well. And because with writing scripts to directing, with micro-budget productions, you don't have that rehearsal time. You don't have the money to try out special effects. So basically, when you're shooting, you're kind of winging it. And it's and it's just experimenting. It's like, okay, I'll write this. We've got this special effect here. I've seen the special effect. Have we, seen, have we actually seen it work? And because you don't really have the money to pay for the special effect, have it rebuild and tested, which to, to me, I, I wish I did, it's kind of like just turning up and saying, okay, let's do this. And, oh, well, this doesn't work. How can we get around that? And to me... If you're a writing director, you need to have a really good director of photography because I had Damien Mortar as director of photography who also played Ronnie uh, in the film. So he was actually DOPing in that heavy makeup. Wow. And at the same time, he was the editor. So if I have the mindset of being DOP and as an editor, he's like, okay, if we get it this way, I can edit it that way. We can cheat this. And it was just great to work with him in that respect because I'm here, the writing director, communicating my script and shot list and he's saying okay maybe maybe we can cut corners maybe we could save time by doing it this way so to me it's all about having a great relationship with a dop to try and bring the script to life but yeah with with screenwriting and directing as a micro filmmaker it is all about compromise and getting that happy medium what you think might look it might look great you know in your head maybe won't translate well so it is just basically getting that happy medium and trying to get your message across with banjo with how crazy it was with you know, we've got head decapitations, etc. Mm. Um, it was just basically um, trying to trying to do it as as good as we can on a modest, on, on a really small budget. And because I'm into like practical effects, I kind of grew up, as I mentioned, on trauma films, but also films by Peter Jackson. You know, Bad Taste, Brain Dead. Uh, I, I wanted to get that practical, um, those, those practical special effects that you kind of saw in the 80s and early 90s, because I feel with a lot of independent horror films these days, they go the CGI uh, route, which, you know, isn't, I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's a bad thing, but to me, I'd like to see things done in camera because it's more organic on screen. It's not something, because when I watch a, a horror film and the CGI involved, I always feel like my mind thinks, okay, that was added in after. Even if, if I watch a film that has a practical effect, I'm like, okay, that might look cheap, but it's, it's there. So it is, with screenwriting and making the film, it is just all about compromise. No, 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 to understand. I mean, and, and it's a conversation I've had with a lot of people on the, the mm. sort of Fright Fest series of podcasts I've done. <coughs> I mean, I remember one particular one for me was, I remember seeing um, George Romero's Survival of the Dead, I think. Yeah. That was the first time I think he'd use ostensibly CGI as opposed to practical effects. Yeah. And from a producing point of view, I mean, the logical thing is it's 
it's <laughs> to to use the phrase that counterintuitive is it is more practical because you can just go ahead shoot your stuff and then after you've shot the film you put the blood in kind of thing but yeah. like you say there is that thing about it looks like a i mean blood still doesn't look right in cgi to me i agree yeah i mean i mean when you when you, however you do it with a bloody vacuum bottle or a, just somebody off camera squeezing something into somebody's face it, lo- it, it has a natural movement to do with the laws of physics. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. I remember seeing uh, Rob Zombie's Devil's Rejects around 10 years ago in the cinema. And that film is basically like a throwback to 70s exploitation horror films. And, you know, it's very grainy. I think they actually shot it on Super 16 millimeter, But it has that grainy look to it. And um, there's a scene in the motel room where someone gets shot. And I'm like, something doesn't look quite right here. And then years later, Googling it, it turns out that you actually use CGI blood. And I was very surprised for a film that's trying to, you know, replicate the aesthetics of a 70s exploitation film goes to the trouble of using CGI blood. I just don't, I don't understand, you know? So uh, I, I much prefer practical uh, effects. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't understand CGI blood at all. No, I mean, that's, I think that's the one weakness. I mean, I remember me interviewing um, a guy who makes automatons, and he worked on Harry Potter, which obviously has yeah. practical and digital effects. And I think for him, it wasn't, for him, it wasn't the threat that CGI was going to take, put him out of a job. The challenge was... Where do you, where do you butt up against what is the real action and what is what is needed for CGI to make a film work? Because I think I think probably yeah. your experience dealing with actors is that it's obviously much better for an actor to have older something or to have something there in front of him as opposed to imagine a giant hawk's just about to scrape your face off. Just do that while you're saying your line, please, and then we'll put the, <laughs> we'll, put, we'll put the giant hawk's claws in after. <coughs> But yeah, um, so, what was, <laughs> so you showed you showed your film. Banjo got to show at Fright Fest. Was that was that your world premiere of it? That's right, yeah, mate. So um, Banjo had its world premiere about two weeks ago now at, at Fright Fest, and um, you know that was that was a dream come true. Really, it really was because I mentioned earlier about how I went to Fright Fest five years ago on my own, and going to Fright Fest it's fantastic because you know you meet like-minded people. And it's such a family environment. So to have the film will premiere at Fry Fest. I mean, and Fry Fest is my favorite film festival. And I think it's like the premier Euro- European genre festival. It's, uh, it's fantastic. It was really, 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 really awesome. Uh, I remember receiving the email whilst at work. And I, I just, you know, I, was, I, was, I wanted to scream with happiness. It was, uh, it was fantastic. And I'm guessing you didn't walk out after an hour this time, like, like your, uh, your sales experience <laughs> in Canada. No, it was... Uh, it was like such a, um, you know, like a 180, you know. It was nice to watch the film with an audience laughing at the right, right parts and just, you know, just getting their reactions. It was a total delight. But at the same time, I was watching the screen just hoping that the DCP didn't mess up or anything. So <laughs> I was like, please don't fuck up. Please don't fuck up. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean to, to be fair, that happened to the best of them, I think. I think in, in one of the main screens, there was a couple of films with... Uh... The odd glitch or two, it does happen. But yeah, I think you reflect a real, <laughs> the real concern of the filmmaker, which is, I've got an audience, they're in a room, they're not going anywhere, so don't just let them watch the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Oh uh, yeah, I mean, it, it must oh, it must be so hard for filmmakers when they do watch their film, and if there's a glitch or something, or the DCP stops running, they, they must die inside, you know, I can only imagine it. I mean, do you, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, I think it was 12 or 13, the Urban Explorers, a German movie. Oh yeah, and the subtitles weren't on, right? There was no subtitles at all. I, I recently watched it, and it actually makes, it make, it didn't make that much more sense having the subtitles than, than what I'd imagined was being <laughs> said, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah, and you know that was a really enjoyable film. I actually, I actually enjoyed Urban Explorers, but when you know they came out afterwards saying that, oh, there were no subtitles, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed, because because it had it had it had enough English in it, didn't it, for you to make That's sense right. of it? But but actually, there was a lot of German, and it felt quite weird not yeah. being explained what was being said. But anyway, <laughs> so what's 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 next then for Banjo? Where where are you? Are you at other festivals? Have you got a release date? Yeah, well, um, we've got two uh, we've got two UK festival dates currently. Um, we're playing uh, the Cutting Edge Film Festival in Newcastle next weekend, okay. and we're also playing the Bram Stoker International Film Festival in Whitby uh, in late October. There's no specific date for that yet, but we'll post the um, the information on the Facebook page and banjomovie.com. Uh, but yeah, it's just working its way around the festival circuit, uh, just waiting to hear back from um, film festivals. And, and that's another thing with filmmaking. Oh my God, it's like, you make a film, you're broke, and then you need to submit the film to these independent film festivals. And some of them can be quite expensive. Sometimes, you know, maybe $50 a pop, you know, $80 on Film Freeway. And... You know, you submit that money to them to watch your film, and if it's not accepted, you, you don't get that money back. So you're kind of gambling. You kind of, you know, you're applying money you don't have to get your film shown, and even then, you know, there's no guarantee. So it's all a struggle. American budget filmmaking is all a struggle. So yeah, waiting to hear back from film festivals. Um, currently writing a few projects right now, and currently we don't have distribution for Banjo, but hopefully it'll find a home soon. Finger, fingers crossed. So. Okay, okay, well, good luck with that, good luck with that. The one last question, then, that I'd like to ask everybody, um, is, can you tell me your favourite British horror film? Okay, um, yeah, okay, so, usually, when I say, okay, this is my favourite British horror film, it's usually a tie between two of them. Okay, cool. Um, you can, but... you can, you can do the tie if you want. Okay, sure, well, I'd say probably my favourite British horror film is, uh, Hellraiser, I remember my grandma renting me Hellraiser and uh, Victor Salva's Clown House um, back when I was maybe five, six years old from the video store. And that was a that was a weird ass double bill. That really creeped me out, especially I mean, Hellraiser just traumatized me. I just remember sat in the chair watching it from afar and just thinking, wow, this is this is deep because the horror films I watched you know, prior to Hellraiser, Nightmare on Elm Street. Child's Play, Critters, you know, they all had that humour interjected in it. So, okay, it'd be scary one second, but then you get the humour, you know. With Hellraiser, it was just straight up. It was just straight up, um, it was just straight up brutal horror film. And that traumatised me for a long time. And to me, Hellraiser, it still holds up to this day. I mean, I watched, um, I, I watched a screening of it at the Prince Charles during Fry Fest because they've just done a, a, a HD, you know, <coughs> Uh, transfer of it and uh, I think it was, sorry I think it was like a 4k transfer um, and it, it looked fantastic and that used practical effects and the effects in Hellraiser were better than a lot of effects that are used in modern day horror films today 
and, and it still holds up. So yeah, I'd say Hellraiser is probably my favorite British horror film. And then another that I saw back in, I think it was 2009 it came out, uh, Eden Lake. I thought Eden Lake was terrifying. I seriously do. It felt like it felt like it, it could happen, you know. And um, so yeah, I'd say it was a tie between either Hellraiser or Eden Lake. That's interesting. Um, Listen, friends, friends of mine who do a podcast called Movie Hell, yeah, uh, Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, were running through their favourite Frightfest moments, and I think mm. I think Frightfest played. I think Eden Lake played in two thousand nine. I think right when it came out, and uh, it, I'd never I'd never known such a film be such a sort of marmite moment for people discussing a film it, it got everybody's back up yeah um in the sense of they hadn't forgot it it's it, it, uh i mean I, i'm i'm pretty much the same i mean i think i think there's some great performances in it obviously you're fast bender um yeah and it is it is a nightmare scenario but but live it live it it's the it's the practicalities of it you know obviously being in america you can imagine going off to somewhere remote and being disconnected from society yeah, and it's just one of those things that about Britain that that isn't that is barely a truism. You know, the idea that you could disappear to somewhere mm -hmm. so remote. I mean, obviously there are remote places in Britain, but they're not two-hour drives from London. That's for certain. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of and and I and I like it and I love it for the same reason because I feel like Eden Lake is sort of uh, like a Daily Mail reader's wet dream. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the idea that if we leave the safety of our of our home, there's these hooded people. Who are, who, who are youth who are going to attack us? And worse still, their parents are just as feral. And yeah. I kind of, that got that stuck in my throat more than anything else. I think you, you, it's a very well-executed horror film and, and, and some of the scenes are fantastic. And, oh, and, and such a powerful ending as well. <clears throat> you know, well, that's kind of, well, that was the Daily Mail wet dream ending, really, which is, yeah. cult, it's, I felt, and that's kind of what I didn't like. It's like, I don't like the idea that, the, well, I don't like the idea of, say, the, the, um, the right-wing media being right about, the state of our feral youth being sure. parented by feral parents. I think that was a. I understand why they did it as a as a story. Yeah. Just but the fact that I could the fact that it got stuck in my throat and I still talk about it and it gets me bothered means that it's it, it's a good piece of art still. Of course, it's done its job. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's it's made you feel a certain way. So of course, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I'm sure you know it's the same. <clears throat> I don't feel the same way about. Sex of Chainsaw Massacre, which would be at the other extreme for me, that's like one of my favourite films ever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure there were kind of conservative reactions to that in America, which about rural America and things like that, because it would have been one of the first that did it that would have pointed the finger at the kind of liberal elite going, what are you saying about us? Yeah, of course, of course, yeah. And um, actually, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I remember um, my mum importing me that on like NTSC VHS when I was like 13, 14, I think about three, four years before it actually got re-released over here uh, after, you know, James Furman stepped down. Um, and that traumatized me to watch that Christmas day. You know, that was just such an horrific film to watch. I felt like I needed a shower after because it's just so raw and brutal. It's, it, and it's like, it's not like it's bloody or anything. No, not at all. It's just no. so visceral, you know, and mm. it's, uh, it's, and it still holds up to this day, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think it's a fantastic film. It's brilliant. No, no, without a doubt, without a doubt. There are many. It's a bit like, it's, it, Texas Chainsaw is a bit like, um, bit like the, I mean, I, I used, I've done a lot of music journalism in the past, and, and a common phrase a lot of indie bands would say is that they're influenced by Sonic Youth. Yeah. When, when in fact, you wouldn't be able to spot the influence in their music if you, if you put a magnifying glass on it. No. What, what they mean is they like Sonic Youth and therefore want to make music, which is not a crime, but, and I think there's a lot of people would say, there's a lot of people saying Texas Chainsaw is a massive influence, but actually, when you look at their movies, 
Yeah. Going where? Where is it a massive influence? You're, exactly. You're, yeah. You're, you're, you you can like the film. <laughs> that's that. <laughs> that's a and it can be an inspiration, but it's not an influence on your movie. And I just you know it's because it is it gets a lot of things right. A bit like you know, um, Reservoir Dogs is yeah. is held up as this big violent film, but actually when you get when you look at it closely, it's not graphic at all. It's no. all it's all the mind's eye doing filling in blanks, which I think is the often the most part often the most powerful thing when watching cinema. <clears throat> well, look, sir, we're digressing, and we're not talking about banjo. So let's, <laughs> let's bring ourselves back to that. Congratulations on your premiere at Thanks. Frightfest. Cheers, uh, mate. Good luck with uh, your other festival screenings, and, and hopefully you'll get a few more in the in the calendar. And also, you get yourself maybe some distribution to get it to a wider audience than than the festival circuit. Yeah, man. Fingers crossed. Thanks, man. All right. Well, look, keep us posted, and any 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 good news you've got about momentum with the movie, let us know, and I, I can pass it on to the guys at Britflix and we'll announce your news on the website. Awesome, Stuart. I appreciate that, mate. Cheers. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you, Stuart. The Britflix Frightfest Preview Podcast Series 2015. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.